0: A sign in the absence of signs is what we're talking about today. We're working our way through uh, Mark Chapter 13. Hopefully you can all hear me, getting the message that you can. That's good. Okay. Uh, Talia and I were getting ready for bed on Friday night and discussing what we were going to do on Saturday, take the kids to to soccer and all the different things, or who's going to go where and what we're going to do and all the different activities we're going to be participating in. And just as we were getting ready for bed, uh, Talia got a message on her phone, and next thing you know, we're in quarantine. I go to Windaroo State School on a Wednesday to teach scripture there, part of the Super Club, the Scripture Union Club, and the message came out of nowhere. I was totally, I was completely flabbergasted. You could have knocked me over with a feather if I hadn't been lying down. There was no sign for me. There was no warning. Just happened. This morning we're talking about signs and the absence of signs. We've been working our way through Mark's Gospel, so Mark chapter one and verse fifteen. And as we read every week, I invite you to read with me this morning. Mark chapter 1, 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus tells us what kind of a kingdom it is and what kind of a king he is in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This Son of Man is apocalyptic language from the book of Daniel. We talked about that last week. This title that Jesus has given himself is from that book of Daniel where he um, talks about this coming of the Son of Man. And so we have this language here. So we were working our way through Mark chapter 13, which is part of the synoptic apocalypse. Synoptic just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they look together. They see things similarly. John is the outlier amongst the Gospels. It fills in the gaps. Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and Luke chapter 21, tell basically the same story. And it's the story that comes up at the end of Holy Week as Jesus is leaving the temple. On the way out of the temple, the disciples say to him, this is a pretty impressive building. And Jesus says to them, do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And so Mark chapter 13 and Matthew's version and Luke's version is all about this question of the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, when will the temple be destroyed? When will this all be wiped out? And we've been working our way through that over these last few weeks. Mark and Luke have two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign that it is about to be destroyed? Matthew has a slightly different two questions, which are really helpful to us. So in Matthew's version, the disciples come and say, tell us, they said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is very helpful to us because as we work our way through the synoptic apocalypse, we see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are actually answering these two questions about the destruction of the temple and about the coming of Jesus and the end of the age. Two events, destruction of the temple and a sign that goes before it, the coming of Jesus and the end of the age, and the lack of signs that go with that. Okay, you're with me so far. Hopefully you all said yes. So as we read through Mark 13, we need to ask ourselves the question, which of Matthew's questions is Jesus answering here? Which of those two events is he talking about? So what sign? The disciples have asked for a sign. So Jesus gives them some advice about signs. But the advice seems contradictory. There's two parables here, a parable of the fig tree, look for the changes, notice when it's coming, the leaves, you know that summer's coming, you know that things are right at hand, right at door. And then the other parable, the parable of the owner coming back unexpectedly, coming back with no notice. One has forewarning, the fig tree is all about noticing what's going on around you and being ready. And the other has no forewarning. So what's that about? I think the answer is quite simply that Jesus is talking about two separate events. And when we see it in that way, these passages make sense. First of all, this fig tree example is all to do with the destruction of the temple. Seeing things happen, knowing it's getting closer and getting ready to run and to escape. So let's read the passage again with that picture in mind from verse 28 of Mark chapter 13. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know it is near, right at the door. When you see these things happening, you know it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So let's talk about that chunk first of all. These things, Jesus says, these things are the destruction of the temple because the disciples come and say, when will these things happen? And Jesus says, these things. You will know these things are at the door. The sign, the destruction of the temple, the abomination that causes desolation that Luke tells us means Jerusalem has been surrounded by armies. These things will be observable. They will be noticeable. There will be information. It will ramp up. There will be advance notice. The early church will see the rebellions happening in the city and across Judea and hear advance notice of the Roman legions marching. And they will know that the things that Jesus has warned about, warned them about are about to happen. They will get ready, pack up, and run. And they did. History tells us that the Christians fled from Judea as the Romans arrived, and most of the church survived, even as Jerusalem was laid under siege and then captured, and the temple was desecrated and then destroyed. The signs that Jesus gave the disciples worked as a warning and they got away. Verse 30 is the absolute guarantee that Jesus is talking about two separate events here because he says, truly I tell you, and as we know from our studies earlier in in Mark's gospel, when we see truly I tell you, it's the translation of 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 the words amen, amen. It's Jesus' way of telling people to pay attention. This is important. Listen to what I'm saying. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The things that Jesus is warning of, the destruction of the temple, the approach of the armies, the need to flee to the hills, is going to happen in the life of the people alive at that time. That generation, the people to whom Jesus is talking at the time, they will see these things happen. And within 40 years, it does. There are people who think that all of chapter 13 is about something in our far future, an event still in our future. And those people like to go to all sorts of kinds of strange lengths to explain away this verse, saying that generation means humanity in general or is referring to some kind of type of sinful people. But I can't agree with that. Jesus is talking to his close friends. He gives them the double amen. He tells them to pay attention, and then he says these events will happen in their lifetime. So I'm convinced that this fig tree parable is related to the destruction of the temple. But, but, Jesus goes on to a second topic, but about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But, here is the second big but of the chapter. We saw one last week in verse 24. But about those days, following that distress, the but in chapter in verse 24 introduces a different idea, a second later event. Those days is different to these things. And here again in verse 32, Jesus switches back to talk about the more distant future event not the destruction of the temple, but rather the coming of the Messiah in power and glory and the end of the age. But about that day, and everything in this future event is different to the destruction recorded in the temple event. About that day, no one knows. Jesus has told them everything they need to know about the temple destruction. We read that last week. Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you everything in advance. But now he says, but about that other future event, no one knows about that. This future event is different. No one knows about it. Not the angels, not the son himself, not even Jesus. Only the father knows when it will occur. And there'll be no warning. In verse 33, he says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Jesus could come at any moment with no warning. So Jesus gives a parable about this. He says, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. The point of this parable is different to the point of the parable about the fig tree. They are contradictory messages. With the fig tree, there is warning. There is change. There are noticeable developments. There is advanced notice of imminent destruction. But with this second parable, parable of the master of the house, the owner of the house coming back in the night, there is no warning. There is no change. There's no signs. The master will simply turn up unannounced suddenly. Matthew uses an extra parable here talking about a thief in the night. No signs, no fanfare, no advance notice. Jesus says he will simply turn up. This is so contrary to the much of the end times preaching and teaching that we hear these days that it might sound absurd to you. But this is what Jesus is saying. You see, you can't sell a book saying that the sign of the end of the world is that there'll be no sign. Because what do you put on page two? And there's no conspiracy theory here for things for people to follow or to obsess over. So how do you build a following? But this is what Jesus says. Things will carry on much as they have. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And then suddenly, lo, he comes with clouds descending. There'll be signs in the heavens above and every eye will behold him. But those will be the signs that he's already here. Not advance notice, but boom, here it is. Again, Matthew tells us, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This will not be hidden. This will be visible, and everyone will know about it. I should say, it's not Matthew saying that, it's Jesus saying that. Matthew's the one writing it down. Jesus says, for as lightning in the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This reality, this teaching of Jesus must absolutely inform how we read the rest of the Bible, particularly how we read the book of Revelation, because if Revelation contradicts what Jesus says in the Gospels, then we might be reading Revelation wrong. But we'll come to that in a few more weeks once they let me out of my house. Some people don't take Jesus seriously. Some people don't take Jesus and his words seriously enough. So, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses decided amongst themselves that Jesus would return in 1918. And then when he didn't, they decided that he had, just that no one noticed they decided there had been a secret return of Jesus in 1918 and that when the last faithful witness that had been alive that year died then the world would come to an end i don't know who that last witness is but he's got to be at least 103 years old at this point and the whole thing looks more ridiculous by the day of course christians do the same thing there's the great disappointment when a Baptist preacher called William Miller convinced thousands of people that Jesus would return in 1844 based on his reading of the strange verses from Daniel that we skipped over last week. Thousands of people were convinced. They sold their possessions. They gave it all away and they waited with excitement and then nothing. Some of Miller's followers changed the theology. Some of the ideas underlying this stuff started the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, which is still going today. It happens all the time. In 1988, a man published a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And then in 1989, he published another book saying 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. And more recently, a church, a group in the States uh, spent massive amounts of money, putting up billboards and advertising the fact that Judgment Day would be on May 21, 2011. You might remember where you were when that happened, but I don't because it didn't happen. It's a scram. It's a rort. It's an absurdity. Don't listen to anyone who gives a specific date because Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not the Son, only the Father. And I say, don't listen to people who point to events in the world around as a sign that the Lord's return is near. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that there will be no sign. He will return like a thief in the night, like a master coming back to his house. No warning. He will just turn up. In Matthew's version of this same teaching, we have this extra example. So Jesus talks about the days of Noah in Matthew's gospel. So in Matthew chapter 24, we have the same idea in verse 36 that we just read in Mark. Uh, Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the father. And then Jesus goes on to give an example of what he means that no one knows. Verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I want to say a few words about these days of Noah because a lot of Christians get this wrong. The example is not about the wickedness of the people of Noah's day. It is about the suddenness of the flood that destroyed them. Some people look at the moral decay in our world around us and they say, oh, it's just like the days of Noah. Things are getting worse and worse and worse, just like in the days of Noah. Jesus has come back and put an end to all of this. Now, that might be true. Yes, things might be getting worse and worse, and it might be just like the days of Noah, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the, Jesus says here. And so we need to sing the song of the Protestants. Join with me if you know the song. That's not what the Bible says. Read it. Read it. That's not what the Bible says. Read it for yourself. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the days of, of Noah, he says marrying and giving in marriage, etc. He's just saying these people were going about their normal business, business as usual. There's no description in this passage about their wickedness or their sinfulness or their evilness. It just says they were going about their business, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and doing the things that people do up until Noah entered the the ark and then their world came to a very sudden and abrupt end. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the day, son of man. Their world came to an unexpected and sudden and abrupt end. It used to be the position of the Christian church and of us Methodists in particular that things would get better and better and better and then the world would come to an end. We never thought of this days of Noah stuff talking about their wickedness. We just thought it was about their suddenness. Methodists and people of our side of the evangelical divide thought that the world was going to get to be a better place. The world would be Christianized. Everyone would be converted. Everyone would hear the gospel and become Christians. And the world would be run with justice and love. And then Jesus would return and be crowned as the king. But in about the 1860s with the American Civil War and later into that century as things got worse and people invented machine guns and things got more violent and World War I came along and people, rivers of blood, and World War II and the Holocaust and the whole thing and all the destruction that we saw around each other and then the bombs, the nuclear bombs going off. Christians suddenly started thinking that maybe things weren't going to get better and better and better. Things were going to get worse and worse and worse until the whole world was awful and then Jesus would come again. And that's when people started reading this Days of Noah example as being an example of things getting worse and worse, just like they did in the Days of Noah. But until the 1860s, 1880s, until 20th century, no one had read that verse in that way. This is the view that has become prevalent in Christian thinking, that things are going to get worse before Jesus comes back. I'm not in favour of either view. I think the first view is naive. And I think the second one is unhelpful. If you think the world has to get a whole lot worse before Jesus comes back, then you may as well behave as cruelly and selfishly as possible to speed his coming. What's the point of caring for the environment? if The world's just going to turn to rubbish anyway. Let's burn everything to the ground. Let's set all the bombs off. Let's pour all the poisons into the rivers and the ocean so that everyone's miserable and horrible, and then Jesus will come back quicker. That's nonsense. The reality is Jesus is coming back at any time without any warning. As in the days of Noah, people will be going about their business and then time's up. No warning, no signs, no nothing, just as a thief in the night. Are there any questions today? I certainly hope so. If you have a question, you can yell it at Jared and he can send me a text message and I can try to answer that in the next few minutes. But otherwise, if you've got questions, please give me a phone call, send me a message, send me an email. I've got nothing to do for two weeks. I'm stuck at home. I would love to discuss these things with you. If you want to talk about the end of the world, I'm very happy to do that. I haven't seen any messages come in. Hang on, No, no messages. So if you've got a question, Please send me an email. I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, Jesus was pretty adamant about these things. And here in chapter 13, Jesus makes a very bold declaration. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The words of Jesus will never pass away. The things we see around us that seem so solid, so real, so tangible, so permanent. Jesus says they're just temporary. The thing that is real are his words. So we ought to sing the song of the new Protestants. Sing it with me. Listen to what Jesus says. Hear him, hear him. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to his words. And what does Jesus say to us today? He says, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus is coming back without warning, without any more advance notice. Are you ready to meet him? If he came in the next two minutes, would you be ready? If he comes in 20 years, will you be ready? If he comes in three centuries, will your life have been spent in useful expectation? The fullness of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Turn from those things you know are wrong and trust entirely in Jesus and his completed work to save. be ready. The master is coming. i like to finish with a song, and this week it's a Christmas carol. So many of our Christmas carols uh, talk about, of course, the coming of Jesus, his birth, his nativity, his arrival here on earth, the incarnation. But so many of them also include a verse or two about the advent, the return of Jesus. So here's a beautiful song to sing. Saints before the altar bending, watching long in hope and fear. Suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Let's pray. Father God, this morning I thank you for these words of Jesus. I thank you for his promise that his words will never pass away. Father God, I pray that each and every one of us would be ready and watching and be in expectation of the imminent arrival of Jesus at any moment. Father God, help us to watch and pray and be ready for that day. Father God, if there's anyone listening to my words this morning who isn't sure that they are ready, doesn't know what will happen on that day, Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them and encourage them and draw them to a place of faith. Father God, help them to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Father God, we don't know what the future holds. Only you know what that final day will be. Father God, we say we trust you. We look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, who will come like a thief in the night. But every eye will see him, like lightning from the east to the west. Father God, we look forward with expectation to that day. When this sad and sorry world comes to an end, we can see you face to face father god give us faith keep us alert help us to stand watch help us to take our part in the long long watch through the night the master is coming back we pray this in his name amen and amen i'll invite the worship group to come back to the stage and you'll sing your final song Encourage you to take these things to the Lord in your private time. Go and read these chapters through. Go and read Mark 13 from beginning to end and then have a conversation with Jesus about about what he's saying here. Take these things and make them a part of your, your personal prayer. Go to that trusted person. Do you have someone you can talk about these deep things with, someone who knows you intimately, someone who can ask you those real hard pressing questions? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Encourage you to be part of a group a study group that reads the scriptures together, that talks about these things, that discusses them. I encourage you to think about mission, ways you can point people towards Jesus. He is coming back and every eye will behold him. So I encourage you, find someone this week and tell them, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready to meet him? And, of course, church. We gather in church to worship. Our Lord and Saviour, we gather together to encourage each other, to build each up, to hear teaching, to remind each other of the truths of the gospel, that Jesus is coming back. I look forward to meeting with you again in person, but we've worshipped with you this morning in our lounge room. Uh, we look forward to being back together. I encourage you to uh, think about the importance of church. It's more than just sitting and singing. It's being there for each other encouraging each other and building each other up and reminding each other of the important truth. This world is temporary and is passing away. But the words of Jesus are forever. God bless you, each one. I'll hand back over to the cedar. Thank you to the team. Thank you for everyone who's worked hard to make this work this morning. I pray that it has been a blessing to you on your end as it has been a blessing to us on ours. God bless you, each one.